Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, New American Standard Bible. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, New American Standard Bible. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, New American Standard Bible. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our look at 15 key scriptures in the Bible as it proceeds from Genesis to Revelation. We're using these key scriptures to illustrate the fact that the Bible is a single story that focuses on a single person, Jesus, and a single plan, the redemption of God's people. Thus far, we've gone over 10 of the 15 verses that we want to focus on. At this point in our journey, we've completed our very quick trip through the Old Testament. In our last episode of Anchored by Truth, the last scripture we discussed was from the book of the prophet Malachi, who was, chronologically speaking, the last prophet before the Lord ushered in a period of hundreds of years of prophetic silence. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., Would you like to make any opening comments before we begin our look at three of the most famous scriptures in the entire Bible? Yes. As you've noted, the scriptures that we heard in our opening today are three of the most well-known scriptures in the Bible, and of course, all of these scriptures pertain to the life of Jesus. Now, the first two scriptures are from two of the four Gospels, one from the Gospel of Luke, the other from the Gospel of John. And then the last scripture that we heard is from the book of Acts, which most scholars believe was also written by Luke, the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke. 
Now, we've selected these scriptures because they help illustrate what the entire Old Testament was pointing towards. Throughout all of the 37 books of the Old Testament, they were all pointing forward to one single major event, the arrival of the Messiah, the Anointed One, on the earth. So one feature of the Messiah's life, of Jesus' life, that we should note immediately is that even though Jesus came to earth as an ordinary human baby, his coming to earth was anything but ordinary. Of course, you're referring to the fact that an angel announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds in the field. And right after the first angel made his announcement, he was immediately joined by a host of other angels, and all of them were praising God. Yes. Today, we live 2,000 years after Jesus lived on this earth. We've grown used to the fact that Jesus the Messiah has come to earth, and that he lived on the earth for 30-some-odd years, and then he died. We've grown used to the fact that Jesus is a historical figure in our day and time. But let's go back and let's think for just a second about what Jesus' birth, about what an event that would have been at that time. Because when Jesus was born, for over 4,000 years, God had been promising a Messiah and had been preparing the world for the arrival of the Messiah. So for over 4,000 years, God had been pointing forward to a day when an absolutely spectacular event would occur, which would be the arrival of the Messiah on that earth. And then one day, over 2,000 years ago, likely sometime in the winter, The event that had been forecast, promised, anticipated, looked forward to for over 4,000 years actually happens. So God, in the way that God will always do those things, wanted to make sure that that event, the arrival of the Messiah, was announced by a very plain and unmistakable sign. Only God, also in the way that he is, decides to make his sign available, not to the highest groups of the society in which Jesus was born, but to a very unlikely group of people, shepherds who are watching over their flocks in the field on a cold winter's night and probably just wishing that they could have been inside and warm, but they were out doing exactly what shepherds should be doing, which was taking care of their sheep. And because of their faithfulness to their flock and because of their faithfulness to their work, that group of shepherds received the most amazing announcement of all time up to that point. Being a shepherd was essentially the lowest rung on the ancient Jewish social and employment ladder. So one point you're making is that God had the most amazing news of all time announced first to shepherds in a field, not to kings in a palace. That does start to put some of the wonder back in the birth narrative. God cares so much for the humble people of the world that he first brought the good news, the gospel, to them, not to people highly esteemed by the world. Exactly. But there's something even more remarkable about what was happening on that ancient winter night. Now, let's go back and remember, what do the first few verses of the Bible actually say? The Messiah's appearance on earth was a perfect reprisal of what happened in creation. Quote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Wow, I see what you mean. In a very human way, the Messiah's appearance on earth 
was a perfect reprisal of what happened in creation. Bingo! The opening verses of the Bible talk about both the heavens and the earth, and that God was present at the intersection of the two. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God brought light to the creation, and He also brought light to a dark earth. Well, the same thing happened in that field that night that the Messiah was born. God ordered beings from heaven, holy angels, to appear on the earth. Now, the New International Version, which talks about angels appearing to the shepherds in the field at night, adds this to the description of that angelic appearance. The radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. In other words, when the angelic host actually appeared, they were accompanied by light. And they weren't just accompanied by a little light. I mean, the NIV says, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. So anything that refers to the Lord's glory and radiance, we're going to be talking about a spectacular amount of light. I mean, it would have been better than the best 4th of July fireworks show that's ever been put on. It would have been a radiance so brilliant that it would have set a glow across the entire horizon. So just as God brought light to earth on the first day of the earth's creation, God brought light to earth on a dark night on the first day that his son appeared on earth, and he did that by means of a heavenly visitation. So the night of Jesus' birth, God announced in a very clear and direct way that heaven and earth were still inseparably connected, and that God himself controls the intersection and the connection. Yikes! You can't have a much more dramatic example of unity of scripture than that. We can get so consumed with all the things going on in our daily lives that we can forget that the created order consists of far more than just our planet or universe, and Jesus is the Lord of it all. Right. And our second scripture for today illustrates another point, that even though the Father, Son, and Spirit are absolutely sovereign over the entirety of the created order, including both heavens and earth, The Holy Godhead always plays by the rules that they set. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they incurred a debt with infinite consequences because you had Adam and Eve, finite creatures, sinning against an infinite creator. So Adam and Eve created a debt with infinite consequences. Well, a finite creature cannot pay an infinite debt. So the only way God could restore a full and complete fellowship with the creature that he created in his own image, man, was to provide a sacrifice of infinite value. And that sacrifice had to be a perfect sacrifice. Well, Jesus lived a sinless life. And so when Jesus lived a absolutely sinless life, Jesus became available to be that perfect sacrifice. And then because Jesus was willing to die on the cross, He made the value of his sacrifice, which was an infinite value because he was begotten of the Father, not of man. His sacrifice was of infinite value. And notice that before Jesus died, as we heard in our second scripture, Jesus declared, it is finished. So what Jesus was saying in that declaration was that Jesus had done everything necessary to redeem God's people. And then God punctuated the fact that Jesus had done everything that was necessary to fulfill the requirements for the redemption of his people by temporarily plunging that part of the earth, Calvary and Jerusalem, into utter darkness. Again, yikes. 
Jesus' birth was accompanied by God bringing light to a dark winter night, but the scripture tells us this process was reversed the day Jesus died. In the New International Version, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 says, quote, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land, unquote. In a very real way, Jesus was the light of the world. Jesus himself says so in John chapter 9, verse 5. But we rarely think about the fact that God wanted us to understand this declaration so clearly that God used creation itself to testify to this fact. Right. In a very literal sense, Jesus brought light to the created order on the first day of creation. Jesus was the one who brought everything into being. The first chapter of Colossians tells us that in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. So everything that was brought into existence on the first day of creation was brought into existence through Jesus. So that very first day of creation, Jesus brought light to the heavens and to the earth. Well, the very first day that Jesus appeared on earth, God used a supernatural manifestation of light to announce that the Creator Himself was about to carry out the final stage of a plan that had been unfolding for 4,500 years. And the day that Jesus completed the work necessary to finish that plan, God, to punctuate that, temporarily removed light. You know, it's as if God turned off a light switch as His Son was exiting a room after He had done all the work necessary to complete a project or an assignment. That is such a powerful visual. You know, the last thing many of us do when we're headed home after a day at the store or office or when we're done cleaning up the kitchen after supper is to turn off the light. Turning on the light in the morning says we're ready to go to work. Turning off the light in the evening says we've completed our work. God had the angels turn on the light in the fields outside of Bethlehem when Jesus began his work on earth. God himself turned off the light on Calvary on the hills outside of Jerusalem when he had finished it. Yes, but one thing did remain after Jesus' declaration that the work was finished. Which was? To know whether the business owner, the father, was satisfied with the work his son had done. It's hard to imagine that God would not have been satisfied with all that Jesus had done. He had, after all, led a sinless life and then given up that sinless life voluntarily. Exactly right. But God, being who God is, left us no doubt that the Father was perfectly satisfied with what the Son had finished. The Sunday morning, after the Friday crucifixion, Jesus got up off a cold stone slab and walked out through a solid stone tomb, and when he did that, he completed the demonstration that all the work necessary for redemption had been completed. The resurrection was the final evidence that the Father was satisfied with the Son's work. And this meant that anyone in the future, or even before Jesus, who had been willing to place their faith in God's promises, but certainly anyone coming after Jesus, this meant that anyone who would place their faith for their own future desire to be resurrected from their dead, if they would place their faith for that desire in Jesus' hands, that they would not be disappointed. And just to be sure that everyone knew that Jesus could accomplish not only his own bodily resurrection, but the bodily resurrection of others, he had already demonstrated this ability throughout the course of his ministry. 
He had done it with Jairus' daughter, with the widow of Nain's son, and finally and most dramatically with Lazarus. And Matthew, chapter 27, verses 51 through 53, tells us that at the moment Jesus gave up his spirit, quote, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people, unquote. But even though Jesus declared that his work of redemption was finished and that the Father ratified that declaration, the process of redemption is still continuing. Yes, it is. But the nature of the redemptive work changed after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, in our third opening scripture today, we heard about Jesus' ascension. And we heard about that in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. But if you go back just before those verses, Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit. And that happened on Pentecost. Yes. And Jesus had told his disciples that after they received the Spirit, they were to become his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the geography of ancient Israel, the instructions that Jesus was giving to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, those locations represent expanding circles of contact that would have expanded out beyond where Jesus had died and where he first appeared after his resurrection. So Jesus was telling his disciples, start in Jerusalem, then take it out to the other regions around Jerusalem in Judea, and then go farther to the regions of Samaria, which would have been in the northern part of ancient Israel. And then he said, and don't stop there, become my witnesses and go all the way to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus was telling his disciples, you are now going to be my witnesses. You're going to carry the good news about the work that I have done, the work that I have finished. You're going to carry it in a steadily expanding pattern, and that pattern is one day going to reach the ends of the earth. So what Jesus said, in other words, was, I have finished my work, but now it is time for you to begin your work. And that's the part of the redemptive process that we're still in. Jesus still wants each of his followers to be a witness for him. But our witness is the testimony that the work necessary to reconcile man to God after the fall is complete. No man, woman, child, or anyone has to add anything to Christ's finished work to be saved. All that we have to do is to tell others about the finished work. But I can't help but notice that the verses from Acts that we did hear that pertain to the ascension once again represented a time when heaven and earth were connected and Jesus was again at the point of connection. And that's a great observation. It also helps illustrate one of the major reasons that we wanted to do this series because we're focusing on the unity of Scripture, the remarkable unity of a book that was composed over a period of over 1,500 years by dozens of authors. You know, sometimes Christians today don't spend very much time reading or studying the Old Testament, and that's because they almost regard the Old Testament as having been replaced by the New Testament. I mean, after all, the Old Testament is old, and the New Testament is new. And we disregard old things and we love new things. But the Old Testament was never replaced by the New Testament. The notion that somehow the New Testament replaced the Old Testament is just not true. The Old Testament is just as relevant to our lives as believers today as the New Testament is. 
You know, without having familiarity with the Old Testament, we lose the ability to see the continuity of Scripture, and we lose many of the insights that we need to properly understand the New Testament. Well, there's an old couplet that says, quote, The new is in the old concealed. The old is by the new revealed, unquote. While there's not much nuance in that couplet, it does make a basic point. Since we live 2,000 years after Jesus, and almost 1,900 years since the completion of the New Testament, we have much more clarity about the life of the Messiah than anyone in Old Testament times possibly could have. But our understanding of many of the aspects of Jesus' life would be substantially diminished if we didn't understand the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant, the reason the religious leaders of Jesus' day called the Messiah the Son of David and why it was significant that the heavy curtain in the Jews' temple was torn at the time Jesus died. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews in the New Testament would be almost unintelligible if we didn't have the Old Testament. Exactly. But because we have both Testaments, we can see that themes recur frequently throughout the entire story of redemption. We can see how they began in the Old Testament, but then how they're completed and how they're finally brought to consummation and fruition in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament is frequently putting the bows on the ribbons where the ribbon was initially begun in the Old Testament. And certainly, most of the themes that we see begun in the Old Testament are brought to their ultimate fruition, their fullest manifestation, if you will, in Jesus' life. So if we will take the time to carefully study Scripture, we will find that by doing so, especially including the study of the Old Testament in our Scripture studies, we find that that will open gateways to realms that otherwise would completely be unknown to the people who don't read the Bible at all. So it's very important for people to understand that the Old Testament is just as relevant for us as the New Testament is. Like the fact that the entire order created by God is not limited to the visible universe. Like the verse you cited from Colossians, quote, In Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, unquote. There are parts of the created order that are invisible to us most of the time. But every now and then, God allows that veil that separates the visible and the invisible to be pulled back or parted, and Scripture contains a record of some of those partings. And it's important to note that a great many of those instances where the veil was parted occurred in and around the life of Jesus, beginning with the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she was going to be pregnant even though she was a virgin. We hear about the encounter in Luke chapter 1 and the veil parting continued throughout Jesus' life. The angels ministered to him in the wilderness. Jesus was transfigured, and God sent Moses and Elijah, representing the Old Testament law and prophets, to strengthen Jesus for the last phase of his work. Angels appeared to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was arrested. And angels were there at the empty tomb first to greet Mary and the other women, and then Peter and John. And of course, as we heard in our scripture, Angels were at the ascension once again, reinforcing Jesus' instructions to the disciples and providing a reminder that Jesus would come again. So the lesson we can take away from all this is that the plan of redemption's progress has not just included people and events from the visible realm, but considerable involvement by the normally invisible realm. Exactly. And that is a major point that we hope our listeners understand. The Bible is the single record of God's unfolding His plan of redemption. 
When the Bible clearly tells us that there are realms that are part of the created order that we don't see around us every day. You know, we don't see the angels appearing the way that they did in Old and New Testament times, and we certainly don't see into the throne room of God, which has been revealed to us in a couple of places in Scripture. We don't see the invisible, the heavenly realms, but just because we don't see them, that doesn't mean that those realms don't exist, and it certainly doesn't mean that those realms have gone away. You know, both the books of Hebrews and 1 John tell us that even today, Jesus is in the heavenly realm, still interceding for his people. Well, I think that should be a very comforting awareness for people. I mean, people should be comforted to know that Jesus didn't just act for his people during the period of time that he was on this earth, but Jesus still lives today. He lives bodily, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, which is the place of honor. But while he's there, Jesus is not passive. Jesus is not inactive. Jesus has not given up doing work. It's just that he has finished all the work necessary to allow full and complete salvation for anyone who will place their trust in him. But we can't have that comfort, that awareness that Jesus is in the heavenly realm, still interceding from his people, if we don't take the time to look into scripture and study and understand what it's telling us. I mean, we can certainly go and gather together in churches or listen to Christian radio, as our listeners are doing now. People can certainly derive information and knowledge about the Scripture and about uh, how God has made provisions for His people and about, about what the Bible says. People can certainly derive that information from other people, in effect, from a secondary source. But how much better is it for us if we will derive that knowledge for ourselves from the primary source, from the Bible itself? You know, Jesus provides comfort to his people, but he's going to provide the most comfort to his people when they will place their trust in the fact that Jesus is providing that comfort. But if we don't understand that Jesus desiring to provide us comfort isn't something new or novel, if we don't understand that Jesus has been doing that literally since the very first of the Bible, how can that bring us the maximum amount of comfort? In the first verse of the Bible, we see that Jesus was involved in the creation of the heavens and the earth, and that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In other words, Jesus has been bringing heaven and earth together since the very first verse of the Bible. Well, Jesus is still bringing heaven and earth together. He's in heaven, we're on earth, but Jesus is still interceding for us on this earth. Jesus still wants to bring heaven and earth together on our behalf, and he will do it. He will do it for us, but he will only do it for us if we trust in his word. This sounds like a great time for a prayer, because everything that happens in either the visible or the invisible realms is under the loving superintendence of our Heavenly Father. Today, let's listen to a prayer of adoration of that Father. A prayer of adoration of the Father. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we praise you and adore you and bow down before you. We are overcome by thoughts of your majesty and excellence, and we humbly come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know from your word that you are a God in whom there is no imperfection, want, or lack, you are perfect in all of your attributes and all of your ways. Because you are the source of all light and illumination, there is no shadow or dark place in you. 
all creation stands in silent awe when it turns toward you. You dwell in the loftiest of the high places, surrounded by the angels that you created to serve you. Glory is your robe, power is your mantle, exaltation your drape, and sovereignty your cloak. Mere words could never describe your grandeur, yet we are exalted as we try. You alone are God. There is no other God like you. There never has been, and there never will be. There will come a time when you will fully exercise your dominion as is fitting and right, and you will set right all that does not conform to your will. We look toward that day when we can stand breathless and amazed at your beauty and holiness. Until that time, let us grow in the knowledge and appreciation of your unmatched glory and let all honor, praise, and worship be given only to you. In Christ's name, let all who know him praise the Lord. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.